Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. All right, would you do me a favor? Um, if you are able, will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, let's put our hearts and our minds in a posture of submission and surrender. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. All right, so one of our vision targets as a church is that everyone who calls us their church home would have a rule of life, a rule of life. Yes, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Uh, Tyler, what's a rule of life? It sounds like Christian speak. Well, it is, it is. Um, Basically what we mean by that is we want you to have a spiritual formation plan. We want you to have rhythms and restrictions that help you connect with God, but also resist popular culture. So if you remember last week, uh, for example, I showed you this book. Uh, It's a book called The Common Rule, written by Justin Earley. Buy it, please buy it. A fantastic book on on rule of life. And uh, in the book, uh, Justin Earley actually lays out his rule of life and tells the story of how his rule of life saved his life. Fascinating little story. So when he was young, uh, he, he started his professional career, if you will, doing mission work in China. Big step for God. Eventually, though, he came back to the States and transitioned out of vocational ministry into ministry in the secular workforce, which is what most of you do, right? You're all ministers. Uh, he went to law school. He became a lawyer. And he tells in this book of a common experience that he had that drove him towards a rule of life. So like many of us, his lawyer career, it just expected a lot of him. Expected a lot. Plus he had kids. Plus he's married. He's just just running fast. Up early every day, answering emails and getting the kids ready, then fighting carpool, then nose to the grindstone at work, and then after work, going straight to the kids' activities, and then we got to get the kids to bed, then I'm going to make a few more emails and a few more calls, and then I get five hours of sleep. If I'm lucky, then rinse, recycle, repeat the next day. Sound familiar? Yeah, despite the pace and the pressure of his life, 
Uh, it was still hitting all the metrics for success. Like most people from the outside of the end looking in would look at, at Justin's life and say, you're doing pretty well. He was living the American dream, making good money, kids are healthy, successful at work. Uh, so that's why he was very alarmed when all of a sudden one night he woke up in a sweat with just this heavy feeling on his shoulders that something was wrong. Something had to be wrong. Now, everything was fine, but it just felt so wrong that he woke his wife up and she's like, what are you doing? You're, you're fine. And so eventually, he took a few deep breaths, went back to bed. But the next day, he says the feeling just stayed. It was like his heart was ringing the alarm bells for no reason. Even again, a few nights later, he woke up and it started to happen more and more often. He couldn't shake it. Now, I, I got to ask you, let's pause real quick. I got to ask you, have you ever had an experience like this before? Because chances are you have, where you just kind of wake up in the night and you feel this heaviness, like something's wrong or something's going to go wrong. And it just sort of mm, weighs you down. Everything's fine on the outside, but there's tension on the inside. Uh, this is an incredibly common experience. So if you've had it, you're not the only one. Um, and it's especially common in the United States of America. See, uh, Justin later found out that he was having a panic attack. A panic attack, that's right. And panic attacks are symptoms of clinical anxiety. Now, some not-so-fun statistics for you. Did you know that I read this week, 27.3% of American adults struggle with anxiety. It's over one out of four. And it gets worse the younger you trend in terms of age. 41.7% of young adults, 18 to 29 years old, suffer from anxiety. That's a lot. Now look, y'all, you probably know this about me if you've been around here long. I love the fact that we are destigmatizing the conversation around mental health and mental illness. I love that the church is having a better conversation about this. Like, we have come light years in the American church compared to where we were at 15, 20 years ago. Praise God for that. But 41.7%, look, it shouldn't be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. But it's come to a place now where it's almost like an, a, a rite of passage for young people to have an emotional meltdown and need a therapist. Uh, if the stats are true, a lot of people hearing my voice in this moment have went through or are going through exactly what Justin did. I want you to know it eventually became debilitating to him until he did something about it. Eventually he sought medical help and that helped and he made some spiritual changes. And when he went back and evaluated that season of his life, uh, he found that there were four key factors that caused so much anxiety in his life. These were the four that he identified. Uh, one was his pace of life. Two was the pressure he put on himself to be successful. Three was the drama of his, of his media consumption that he was engaged in every day. And four was the unhealthiness of his self-medicating uh, routines and habits. It was all anxiety-inducing, period. 
So you see, y'all, believe it or not, when you run at that pace and you put that much pressure on yourself to be successful and your identity is rooted in your achievement at work and the success of your kids and then you consume all that dramatic clickbaity media all the time and then you medicate it with violence and soft porn on Netflix every night. Oh, and also bourbon every night. Oh, and also sugar every night. And then you stop sleeping enough uh, and then you start taking sleeping pills and you take a glass of wine with the sleeping pills to help you sleep, right? And then you forget what vegetables are. And then you don't, you know, exercise, you don't read your Bible, you don't pray, you don't eat breakfast because you don't have time. You don't go on walks outside. You don't have any more meaningful friendships because that takes too long. Uh, you're working on vacation and your schedule is stacked. So you're driving like 15 miles per hour over the speed limit everywhere and you're always 15 minutes late everywhere and your phone every five seconds is vibrating and flashing and beeping trying to grab your attention. If that's you, guess what? Your anxiety inducing life will eventually convert you to anxiety. Early wrote, my heart said one thing, that God loves me no matter what I do. But my habits said another, that I better keep striving in order to stay loved. In the end, he said, I started to believe my habits, mind, body, soul. I love this question. How did the missionary come to be the one who got converted? He writes, well, he says, my body had finally become converted to the anxiety and busyness I'd worshiped through my habits and routines. Mm. So translation, doesn't matter how spiritual you say you are or what you say you believe, your choices will determine who you become eventually. Now, I'll be the first to say, again, I'll be the first to say that sometimes uh, clinical anxiety is totally out of our control. It's born from trauma in your past or it's born from, uh, you know, medical conditions that you didn't ask for or maybe it's genetic. That all could be true, no doubt. But it's also important to acknowledge that sometimes the source of our anxiety isn't medical and it isn't genetic, it's spiritual. Now medical problems need medical intervention in order for them to heal. So that means spiritual problems need spiritual intervention in order for them to heal. And this was early. So how did he heal? Well, he healed by implementing a rule of life built around four rhythms and four restrictions. I showed you this last week, but it's worth reading again because these are so simple, so practical, so accessible. He had four daily habits, four weekly habits. Let's just read through them real quick. Uh, daily habit number one was kneeling prayer three times a day. Uh, two, uh, one meal with others every single day. Uh, three is one hour with your phone off or, or what we might call at the Northeast Christian Church, enveloping your phone for an hour and then uh, number four was uh, consuming scripture in the morning before he picked up his phone. Weekly habits are one, one hour of conversation each week with a friend, so like going and having lunch or coffee with a Christian friend. Uh, two, curating his me media to four hours or, or less. Three, fasting from something a day a week. Usually for him it's food, but he's like, it can be anything, honestly. And four, uh, having a Sabbath, Sabbath from work every week. Now, I think that's a great eight. Accessible, practical, anybody in this room could pull that off with some hard work and accountability. But I love y'all so much, you might recall that at the beginning of this year, I didn't ask you to commit to eight. I only asked you to commit to two. 
On January 1st, uh, I asked everyone who calls Northeast their home uh, to commit to one rhythm and one restriction as like the irreducible minimum corporate rule of life for our church. Our restriction, well, we talked about it last week, asked everyone to limit the quality and quantity of your screen intake, whatever that means for you. And it probably means something different for all of us. And two, our rhythm, which we'll discuss today, is I asked everyone to engage daily and prayerfully in God's word. And the hope is, is that if we install these habits, the right habits in our life, then spiritual formation will happen. The right habits convert us to the peace of God. The wrong habits convert us to the anxiety of our age. So let's lean into the right ones. Now, let's talk about our rhythm today. The reason why I chose prayerful daily engagement with Scripture as like the keystone rhythm or the one habit that we would choose from is because I, I personally believe that this is the primary way we hear the voice of God today. Everybody wants to hear the voice of God. One of the more popular questions I get as a pastor, ask any of our pastors, people ask this a lot, is is how do I hear God's voice or how do I know God's plan for my life, God's will for my life and this thing or or that. And it's a great question, by the way. If you're asking that question, you're already on your way towards the proper posture of letting God lead you. I love it. But usually when people ask me that question, the answer they're looking for is some sort of magical formula in response. What's the magic formula for me to figure out like what those deep feelings or nudges inside of me are or like, like look into nature and see the omens of, of the leaves and the tree. Oh, my stomach just rumbled. What's God saying to me there? I don't know. Maybe you're hungry. Like that could be just that. Um, you know, there's a rainbow in the sky. Is God giving me a promise? Probably not. It's probably just the sun's light reflecting off water droplets in the atmosphere but maybe who knows right now see I just I just don't think it usually works like that I usually think when God speaks to us there are three primary ways that he does it and they're all quite biblical all right so we pulled this this slide out of the vault I used it several years ago in a sermon series that I preached on how to hear the voice of God and that's because I think it sums up really really well how you hear from God. First off, you need to know that if you want to hear the voice of God, what you're asking to hear is the voice of God, the Holy Spirit. Because God, the Holy Spirit is the one speaking to us, working in us, acting, sanctifying the world today. He is very active in every heart in this room right now. The Holy Spirit will speak to you in one of three ways. One, he'll speak to you through inspired scripture. Word of God. It's God breathed. Inspired by the Spirit. Two, he'll speak, you, speak to you through a controlled conscience. To be clear, the Holy Spirit's not your conscience. He's not Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder. Uh, but the Holy Spirit would love to control your conscience. So one of the goals of the Christian is to surrender their conscience and say, Spirit, what would you have me do in this moment? Guide me. And then if you do that, over time, he'll take control. And you'll bear fruit of the Spirit in your lives. Third way is through other spiritual people. Because believe it or not, you are not the only one with the Holy Spirit inside of you. There are other people who have the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes letting them speak into your life is literally hearing from the voice of God. That's why community, accountability is so important. But one, two, three, and you see I have some multipliers underneath all three of them. I think prayer added to any one of these three has a multiplying effect. You'll hear the voice of God clearer. I also think longstanding commitment has a multiplying effect. Hence, 
the prayerful daily reading of scripture. I'll tell you what, if you commit to this for hours upon hours, days upon days, years upon years, if you run this playbook, before you know it, God's voice will just flow naturally into your life and through your life. You won't even have to ask for it. So that's, again, why I believe prayerfully reading God's word every single day, it's essential. It's essential. It converts us to the story of God. And I'll go ahead and tell you, if you're not being converted to the story of God, you're being converted to another story. If you are not pursuing God's story, then there are other stories that are pursuing you, pursuing your mind, pursuing your body, pursuing your soul. So I made a list of questions for you. You can, you can throw them up there. These are just some of like the core questions of life that we're constantly uh, you know, asking ourselves or that constantly pop up in our conscious or our, our subconscious. And I would just suggest to you that if you compare the story of God to the stories that our popular culture tells us, you'll see the answers that they give to these questions are just categorically different. Like, where did we come from? The story of God gives a totally different answer than the stories of popular culture. What do I have to do to matter? Story of God has a totally different answer to that. What is truth and where do I find it? What is right and what is wrong? Story of God and the story of our popular culture has a totally different answer for how you discover truth and what's right for you. What should I do with my money? What should I do with my sexuality? Two completely different answers. Why is there suffering? What do I do when I suffer? Uh, when I suffer. And what happens when we die? Two totally different questions, right? And how do I live the good life? The story of God has a completely different answer to that question than what you'll hear from our popular culture. Do you see? So this is a critical point for us to understand, y'all, when it comes to your spiritual formation. The voices that you listen to are the voices that will disciple you over time. Your attention is a portal to your soul. So what voices are you listening to and what stories are they telling you? Because everyone is telling you a story about the way things are. Now, let me show you real quick. Let's just do a little, little cultural exegesis today. A little cultural interpretation. And look at some of the main storytellers in our popular culture. First, let's talk politics. Uh, you do realize that, that it's about to be an election year, right? Hmm? Uh, you better be glad. Whoever's ringing right now, you better be glad I went last week's sermon. <laughs> Just saying. Now, uh, it is an election year, which means that dumpster fire anybody? Like, are you ready for it? Of course you're not ready for it. Right, but that's, that's where we're heading. So I might ask you to consider before things get too hot, before things get too heated, I might ask you to consider who are the political voices that you are listening to? What stories are they telling you? What are they telling you is right? What are they telling you is wrong? Who are they telling you to love? Who are they telling you to hate? Who are they telling you are the heroes? Who are they telling you are the villains? What are they telling you your duty to your neighbor is? Because I'm telling you, if you listen close enough, they're answering all those questions, all of them. And it's almost always through the lens of fear 
You ever notice that? Apocalyptic doomsday fear. Those folks on the other side, they aren't just wrong or in need of correction. Uh, They're Nazis. They're trying to kill democracy. They sleep with children. They're racist bigots. They, you know, are evil. And if we put our nation in their hands, it's over. Every election cycle. It's a bipartisan tactic, by the way. Tell your story through the lens of fear. Demonize the enemy. And it's a story as old as this country. Okay, so I want to show you. I want to show you. Okay, so, so maybe the most chilling example of this was a political ad done in 1964 by uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, you can go back all the way to the 1800s and you can find fear-mongering in political campaigns, right? But this, one, this one's relatively recent. Uh, so Lyndon Johnson won the election against, uh, against Barry Goldwater, and, uh, and he, this ad was, was key to it. Goldwater had said some irresponsible things about nuclear weaponry. And so Johnson and his campaign team jumped on that, put together an ad in order to strike fear in American hearts. It's an ad called Daisy Girl. We're going to watch it right now. Check it out. President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. Woo! Lord have mercy. We must either love each other, aka vote for Johnson, or we must die. Now you see, we laugh, right? But they, they do it every election cycle. I could pull out, I could pull out examples from four years ago. This is politics, converting us over to the story of fear for 250 years now. Don't let them do it to you this year. While we're on politics, what about news outlets we consume? Well, they tell us stories too. What, what, stories, what, what stories do they tell? That depends on which news outlet you're connected with. But most of them are not trying to hide their bias. So I ask you to do this once a year. Um, I, I'm honest, I've been probably doing this for three or four years now. All right, once a year, I think it's important for you to, to go online and Google one of these like media bias charts. I've got one here for you. I didn't, you know, didn't really fact check it, but I think it's close. Uh, you know, one of the media bias charts, it kind of shows you the landscape in terms of left and right leaning media outlets. And then what you should do is you should pick a few of these out, few on the left, few on the right, and play a little ping pong. It'll take you about 15 minutes. Go to the left uh, leaning site. Look at the headlines on that site. Bounce to the right. Look at some headlines on that site. Bounce back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And here's what you'll see. You'll see 
that the left and the right have a, radical dif- a radically different vision for the world. You'll see that many of these news outlets have a very specific story they're telling about the world. Do you want to do this? Let's play a little ping pong. Can we play a little bit? Let's do this. Um, so this, this week on Thursday morning, I went online, looked at about five to 10 of these different websites. I just want to show you a few of them. And I just want you to notice how they see the world. I'm just going to, without political commentary, I'm just going to offer this to you, okay? I didn't post it on their website. They posted it on their website. So let's just, let's just look. Uh, first, let's start with Fox News. What we got here? Uh, well, we got a headliner article about the White House uh, press secretary dodging questions concerning Hunter Biden. We also got bottom left, a Democrat governor whose state is in a state of emergency because of her immigration politics. In the middle, we got a quarterback story, which I'm not sure what's going on there. And then bottom right, we've got Joe Biden, just too old to be president. Front page. All right, so a little ping pong. Let's go to the left now, MSNBC. What we got here? Well, we got a headliner about the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, who's trying Donald Trump for racketeering and tampering with elections. Then just make your way around there. Top left, we got a piece defending Pelosi. Uh, Then we got uh, some stuff on on, uh, pro-vaccine stuff after that. Also also got a nice little piece underneath that on anti-vaxxers in Florida. Then we got a Trump hit piece, another Trump hit piece, another Trump hit piece. And then bottom middle, we have Republicans with knives. Let's ping pong back to the right. Uh, we got the, uh, the Federalist here. Uh, the Federalist uh, here. They're talking about vaccinations in Florida too, right there on the banner. You see it? Uh, except they're saying that Florida's right to advise against them because there's no evidence. Then we got Hunter Biden again doing bad things. And we got the Democrats having sex for money right there in the middle. Okay, back to the left. What's the Huff Post got? Well, take your choice. What do you want? You want a hit piece on Trump? They got that. Uh, You can read a little bit about Lauren Boebert going crazy at a Beetlejuice show. Um, And also you can get a defense of Hunter Biden. He's not so bad. Back to the right. What's the One America News Network got for us? Well, they've got Hunter Biden as a criminal. Back to the left. What's CNN got for us? Well, they got Donald Trump as a criminal. Back to the right, what's the blaze leading with? Well, Kamala Harris is bad and Pelosi is kneecapping herself, which sounds painful. Then back to the left, uh, oh, we can't even see the news on the Democracy Now! site without first being solicited with a pop-up to give to, and I quote, the climate crisis, war, attacks on reproductive rights, and book bans. These threats aren't looming, they are here and now. Okay, I'll stop. Somebody shouted amen in the first service. Thank you, Lord. I'll stop. (laughs) But I just want to keep making this point to you, especially on the cusp of an election season. Depending on which news ecosystem you live in, you will see the world differently. In defense of these networks, I wouldn't necessarily call it fake news, but I would call it propaganda. Every time you turn on the news, you are listening to someone's curation and interpretation of the world. They handpick the stories in order to fit their story, and they're very good at it. Let's motor through just a a few more real quick. A few more storytellers that we give way too much of our attention to. Uh, How about social media? Popular one is Instagram. Uh, Love love me some Instagram. And uh, did you know that Instagram actually has a feature on the app called Stories? 
And if you watch stories, uh, here, here is what you'll discover is basically the main theme. Um, other people's lives are awesome. Their kids are awesome. They're pretty and also awesome. And so why are you sitting on the couch this Saturday night in sweatpants with an empty carton of Ben and Jerry's? That's just like, that's the vibe. Because they're awesome. This is the great danger of social media, by the way. I don't think it's just spending too much of your time on it. I think it's actually living through it. Living through. Through an app. Finding your identity. Measuring your self-worth there. Seeing every moment of your life through the lens of a possible post. And how many hearts it'll get you. All of a sudden, every moment in our field of view becomes, well, maybe I should take a picture or a video of that because people will really like that. Every conversation we're in becomes, well, is there a quotable quote in here that I can post that sounds funny or sounds wise? Rather than confronting people real time and having hard conversations, we just sort of go onto social media and subtweet about those people over there because that's courageous. Social media doesn't just sell you a story, it sucks you into a reality an alternative one. Uh, what about the ads that we see constantly? Well, I would say that most ads, not all, but most ads uh, deploy a strategy called inadequacy marketing. Inadequacy marketing. You know what this is? Inadequacy marketing is, is basically uh, an ad that tries to convince you somehow your life is incomplete until you buy their product. So you're not having fun until you drink this beer. You know, you're not safe and prepared until you buy this insurance. You're not cool and fashionable and with the times until you rock our brand or whatever it may be. What about music? We're doing this thing right now on Wednesday mornings uh, with our staff, a little cultural exegesis for you, where we're listening to some of the most popular music uh, out there. And uh, like we, get, we, we print off the lyrics, we watch the music video, then we discuss as a staff, what story is this song telling our people? So you know what song we did this week? Uh, this week we did Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town. The song was a controversial hit full of all sorts of country boy machismo. And it tells a story, doesn't it? It tells a story of what he thinks a community should look like, who he thinks the real problem is in our country, and what we should do with those people if they ever make the mistakes of showing up in our streets. It's a story. Hey, here's the last one that no one wants to talk about, but so many people are watching. What about pornography? It's a story as well. An unrealistic, often violent story of intimacy that ruins real relationships. But that's for another sermon. Here's my point. The voices you listen to are the voices that disciple you over time. Your attention is the portal to your soul. So what voices are you listening to? What stories are they telling you? It's just an important question to keep front of mind because everyone's telling you a story. Now that leads us to the Bible. The Bible. A book that tells a markedly different sort of story that centers around Jesus. And Psalm 1 is crystal clear on the rhythm that we should all cultivate if we want to flourish in the way of Jesus. Psalm chapter one, the psalmist writes, oh, the joys of those who do not pause, notice, 
first line of the first psalm in the Psalter, the psalmist tells us that there's joy in resistance. Oh, the joys of those who do not. Notice that. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. So there you have it. First two verses of the first Psalm. There's joy in certain restrictions. There's joy in a very specific rhythm. I'm gonna tell you what, daily prayerful meditation on scripture was a non-negotiable for our spiritual ancestors. Now, did you know that most scholars actually agree that the editors of the Psalms put Psalm 1 first in, in the collection for a reason? And the reason is because Psalm 1 uh, explains to you how to use the rest of the Psalms. You're supposed to meditate on them. Delight in meditating on them over and over and over again. Uh, that's why I think the best genre classification for the Psalms and maybe all of the Hebrew Bible, I got this from the Bible Project, guys, uh, is, uh, is ancient meditation literature. The Bible is actually written, it's designed to be read over and over and over, over the course of a life. That's actually the genius of the Bible. It's a discovery process as you grow and you will you will grow. You ever read a verse and it just falls flat, but then you come back to it a year later and it's like bubbling with life and meaning? That's the point. So the psalmist goes on. He says, those who meditate on scripture day and night, here's what happens. What a beautiful image. They are like trees planted along the riverbank. They're riverbank trees bearing fruit no matter the season. They're just rooted in living water. Hmm. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. So basically, Psalm 1 shows us what the ideal Bible reader looks like. The idea is that every day for the rest of your lives, you come back and you read and ponder, read and ponder, read and ponder. And as you do, something powerful happens. The Bible starts to read you. And the eternal divine truths therein begin to apply themselves to your every day. And you become that riverbank tree that thrives no matter the season. You can bear fruit in the spring. You can bear fruit during the harvest. You can even bear fruit during winter. What a promise. So I would go as far to suggest to you this. If you're not reading the Bible over and over and over and over, like the passage suggests, you're doing it wrong. This is the opinion of the Psalter. Psalm chapter one. And if you're not reading the Bible over and over and over, it's not reading you. And if it's not reading you, something else is. And this is how the psalm ends. He says there's basically two paths. There's the path of those who meditate on the word day and night. It's called the path of the godly and the Lord watches over that path. Then there's the path who don't, the path who go with wickedness and their path leads to destruction. Verse six. So I think the psalm leaves us with a simple question today. What do you meditate on day and night? What voices do you listen to? What stories are they telling you? What sort of life are they converting you to? Uh, a life of anxiety and fear? A life of, of, of rage and violence? A life of envy and insecurity? A life of confusion and doubt? 
a life of numbness and apathy, a life of longing yet dissatisfaction, or a life of delight and flourishing. It's interesting that the verse says you should meditate on it day and night. It reminds us of those vulnerable moments right when you wake up at the beginning of the day or right before you fall asleep at night. Studies have been shown, uh, have shown that, uh, that these moments are incredibly formative. It's almost like what you fill your mind with at the very beginning in the morning and what you fill your mind with right before you fall asleep has a disproportionate impact on your state of mind. So what do you meditate on day and night? What do you meditate on first and last? I want you to think about that. We, we have an entire generation where like the last thing we do at night is we watch Netflix and all the soft porn and violence and secular vision for life that it has for us. And the first thing we do is we open up social media and it induces envy or we open up a new se- uh, you know, headline and it induces rage or we go straight to work and it induces busy, just injects it into our veins for the day. So what if the psalmist's advice is, is actually correct? I would just encourage you to try it. First and last, what if we meditated on God's word? In fact, that's your homework this week. I gave you another gift. Did you all get this when you came in? Pull out this little orange piece of paper. Round of applause for our volunteer greeters who got this in your hands. These people are great. We told them to be pushy. Forced it on them. Uh, Last week I gave you an envelope because I love you. Just by a show of hands, how many people actually used the envelope to restrict their screen intake, screen intake this week? Okay, good. Uh, show of hands, how many people just restricted their screen intake overall? It didn't matter, envelope or not. Okay, so that's, that looked like a majority of the room. That's great. Praise. Uh, this right here is going to help you with your rhythm this week. Uh, if you look at the front of it, it's, it's called our, our Bible Before Phone Reading Plan. Uh, everybody say Bible Before Phone. Do you know why it's called the Bible Before Phone Reading Plan? Yes, good job. Um, because we want you to prayerfully engage God's word before you engage your, your phone. So there are three steps to this. Uh, the first one involves your phone. So I'm giving you a special dispensation of grace, even the high schoolers, to pull out your phone during church real quick. And what I want you to do first is I want you to opt into this reading plan via text. So uh, I want you to text 833-275-2412 right now. Text the word Bible to that number. Here's what you're opting into, just so you know, okay? On the other side of your, of your card is a reading plan. It lasts for about two months. Uh, it will get you through four books of the Bible. It's the four books of the Bible that we're about to study in our next Bible study series. And uh, this right here will serve not only as a reminder for you to do your reading, but via text every day, we are going to send you uh, some thoughts You'll, fr- from your pastor. It'll be either me, Terrence, or Becca. We're going to send you thoughts on the passage for the day. We're going to try to stay one day ahead of you, do our quiet time, and then share with you a thought and maybe a prayer question for you to meditate on the next day when you read the passage. You, you get it? Okay. Now, for this to work, though, for us to actually be Bible before phone, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take this, step two, take this reading plan, Put it into your Bible, your real actual paper Bible, and, and put that Bible somewhere where you'll go to it first in the morning. Maybe it's your nightstand, maybe it's by the coffee maker, a special chair in your house, wherever you go to, put it there. And when you wake up, first thing you do is you go and read the passage. There's a couple times where we ask you to watch a summary video from Bible Project on the book. 
but overall it's almost all passages. Go read the passage first. It's usually two chapters. It'll take you about six to eight minutes. And then after that, you may then pick up your phone and at 5 a.m. every morning, a text will go out with thoughts from your pastor. And that will give you a prayer thought and some prayer cues for the day. Pretty cool, right? If you're looking for practical application, it's as practical as you can get. Look, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. Like, we're throwing you in the water here, horse. Just drink, man. Just drink. We're doing it for you. I'm encouraging you. Give this a shot. Now, I'll close with this. All right, and you can leave. Did everybody get the number? Did you the number? Okay. Um... Let me close with this. I believe the Holy Spirit would love to set your habits for you. He would love that. Here for it, literally. That's good doctrine, right? The Holy Spirit is here to do that. But I also believe that your phones and their programmers would love to set your habits for you as well. They would love to speak the first and last words of your days to you. And they usually do. And that's a problem because we come to internalize the wrong stories that form us in the anxieties, fears, and sins of this world. And you know this, like we can feel this today. We sense something's not right about it all. Like we've never seen politics control people the way that they are right now. You've noticed the strangely specific targeted ads. You recognize the addictive nature of screens, especially if you have kids. You're tired of the inescapable barrage of media and marketing. There's a voice inside of you that doesn't want to be addicted anymore, doesn't want to be anxious, doesn't want to be controlled. There's a voice in all of us telling us that there's something a little bit wrong here. I believe that's the Spirit's nudge. So you may roll your eyes at all this rule of life stuff, But I'll tell you what, go ahead and roll your eyes, but it won't fix it. It won't fix your anxiety. It won't fix your dissatisfaction. It won't fix your fear or your disillusionment with life. You do know that you already have a rule of life, by the way, right? You already have one. Whether you participate in this or not, you have a rule of life. You have a regular set of rhythms and habits that are forming you into who you're going to be over the long haul. You do. You have a rule for the way that you eat and drink. You have a rule for the way that you use tech. You have a rule for the way you engage with your spouse or your kids. Uh, You have reading habits, viewing habits, church habits, weekend rhythms, a morning routine, an evening routine when you wind down. And I would just ask you, where do you go? What do you give your attention to in those moments? Who are you with? What do you do? And how is it all forming you? See, you may not have a rule of life written down, but you have one. You may have drifted into it unconsciously, but you have one. In fact, my guess is you probably did drift into it unconsciously. We have ignored for far too long the way our habits shape us. And so we've been assimilated into the American rule of life rather than the Christian one. But the psalmist reminds us that there is joy to be had. There's joy when we meditate on the law. There's fruit and flourishing when we root ourselves in the river. There's protection when we walk in the way of God. So I would just encourage you, as we prepare to take communion today even, I would just remind you. It's interesting. Jesus comes along later and he says, uh, I'm the fulfillment of the law. Jesus comes along and says, I'm, I'm the living water and the Holy Spirit's like a rushing river inside of you. I am the vine, and if you connect with me, your tree will bear fruit. 
I am the way, he says. I'm the path. And there is no other way, no other path that leads to God. Or in other words, he is the joy and the delight that Psalm 1 points us to. The psalmist tells us to throw ourselves into this story. And spoiler alert for those who haven't read it, this is Jesus' story. So for those of you who need more Jesus, Bible before phone, give this plan a shot. It starts in Romans. I mean, come on, give it a shot. Give it a shot. Because it might just be exactly what you're looking for. Now, right now, uh, let's reflect on this story for just a moment as we prepare to take communion. And then let's sing one last song together. You know what good worship songs are? They're just a prayerful reflection on Scripture. It's something we get to do collectively as a church every week. So let's reflect on our Jesus. Let's sing a song, and then we'll conclude.